Hi, and welcome back to the second episode of Words to Kill By. Hopefully you've listened to our first episode, which is all about the Michelle Carter case. If you haven't, definitely go back and check that out. It's a very interesting case. Today I am joined with another Words to Kill By um, member. This is Kathy. Say hi, Kathy. Hi. And our case today is thought to be the very first case in modern history, at least on record, where linguistic evidence became the focus of the entire murder trial. So it's back in the 1950s. It's in the UK. Uh, So join us for the very tragic tale of Derek Bentley. All right, so some history on Derek Bentley. It was another beautiful summer day when Derek Bentley was born on June 30th in 1933. In fact, the summer was even said to be called the exceptional summer of 1933 because it was unusually sunny for that area of England. I guess when you get a lot of sun in England, it's exceptional. Apparently. Don't know. I need to find out. Seems like a great start to life, but Derek's life was not a sunny and exceptional life. He was only six when World War II started. It was around the same time that a bomb hit his house that Derek was in, causing it to collapse on top of him. There isn't any surviving documentation that states whether or not Derek was injured in this blast, but since World War II, we know that there's been extensive research about how even being close to a blast causes injury, particularly traumatic brain injury, or TBI. So I feel safe to go ahead and assume that with the collapse of the house on Derek, plus the blast, he probably sustained some general head injury of some sort and a TBI. This is important for the story, so keep that kind of in the back of your mind. So World War II ends. Derek goes back to a normal life. He goes in for his 11-plus exams at school, and he significantly fails them. So poor Derek, um, doesn't he's not doing very well in school. So remember, this is in England, so the 11-plus exams are like our grade-level tests to see if he has the skills to move on to the next level. Uh, Many sources have said that Derek suffered developmental problems, and not passing his exams really supports this. Uh, So we don't know at this point whether or not his exams, not passing his exams is part of his TBI, but this is kind of the first clue that there is something not um, on par with Derek. So three to four years later, Derek is 14, and he's arrested and found guilty of theft. He's sentenced to three years at Kingswood Approved School. So I googled this and I found out it's a boys-only reformatory school in Gloucestershire, England. Sorry if I butchered that. Don't yell at me. It's been around, the school's been around since 1852. And the website said, for the school said that it was around the, that around the time that Derek was there, it offered training like farming, gardening, cabinet making, other trades, trying to give these boys something else besides criminal activity to do with themselves. So it also became what was called a classifying school, which it means it did mental, emotional, and physical assessments for its residents to see if they needed any additional institutionalization. Wow, that was hard to spit out. That was hard. (laughs) Or some other kind of mental care. It was here at just 14 years old that Derek and Christopher Craig met for the very first time. Christopher Craig is the second protagonist in our story here. 
So during the following year, Derek was evaluated at Kingswood and it was discovered that he had a mental age of 10 years, 6 months, and a reading age of 4 years and 6 months. His actual age was 15. So, you're very familiar with 4-year-olds. How well would you say a 4-year-old can read? Most 4-year-olds in my experience, from my observations, have very limited quote-unquote reading skills. Right. They recognize symbols such as Walmart or the symbol um, McDonald's. They're mostly learning letter recognition and letter sound association. So some can read at four, but most cannot. Okay, so there's really no reading here. This is another important clue. I should note that Kathy spends a lot of time with three and four-year-olds because she works in a preschool, so her word has a lot of authority there. Derek also completed an IQ test at this time, and he scored a 66. A 66. So according to Forbes, the average score for a British male in the mid-20th century, which is about where we're sitting with Derek, this story about Derek, was a 99.1. So Derek's IQ was significantly lower. And it's, it's obvious that he's delayed in a lot of different ways. So let's go ahead and we'll jump forward a couple of years. In 1949, at the age of 16, Derek is diagnosed with epilepsy. If you're familiar with TBIs at all, this should not come as a surprise, okay? So here's a second bit of evidence that Derek did suffer a TBI at age six. Uh, So if you'll read this quote from the National Library of Medicine. Traumatic brain injury, TBI, due to explosive blast exposure is a leading combat casualty. It is also implicated as a key contributor to war-related mental health diseases. A clinically important consequence of all types of TBI is a high risk for development of seizure and epilepsy. So would you say it's possible that Derek had a TBI when he was six? Based on that information, it could be very possible. Right. So we see that he had epilepsy. He developed it at 15, 16 years old. So that's 10 years later. That's not unheard of. Um, He was in a significant blast. We know that he has developmental delays, which is also TBI related. So Derek also gets an EEG conducted. And so the results of this brainwave test, because of his epilepsy, he had this test, it shows abnormal results. I could not find anywhere online what exactly these abnormal results were, just that it was abnormal. So poor Derek, it seems to be abnormal all the way around right now. The following year, at age 17, Derek is released from Kingswood. Remember, he's still there because he was found guilty of theft. He served just two years of his three-year sentence. It's probably not surprising that Derek is released from Kingwood and he begins to struggle with reintegration. He cannot seem to get back into the flow of life at all. And he spends the whole next year hiding away from the general public and just trying to avoid trouble, but also trying to avoid people. In one case or in one report that I read, it says he pretty much made himself a recluse. Didn't want to have anything to do with anybody. 
So at the age of 18, he finally gets a job with a furniture store. It's this big warehouse and he's moving furniture. Um, but he's not really satisfied with this work or maybe he was trying to seek some type of glory or bigger meaning in his life. But he decided to go try to join the military, the British military. And at that time, he had to go through medical exams. So what do you think happens? I would guess that he did not pass his medical exams. Yeah. So he was rejected from military service because he was found, quote, mentally substandard, end quote. That, so, that fits with all of the other information. Exactly. Exactly. So he was not capable of doing whatever job he wanted to do in the military, whatever job the military needed him to do. So he goes ahead. He returns to his furniture store, but he quits after he hurt his back in 1952. He tries to get another job. He found one a couple months later, and he hires on as a trash collector. Um, so he's doing his job. It's obviously not very exciting to, to collect trash, but you know, somebody's got to do it. But just after he turns 19, he's demoted to just plain street cleaning. And a few year, a few months after that, he's fired for, quote, unsatisfactory performance. Derek is just not able to catch a break here. So he's incapable of holding a job due to having developmental issues. Or do you think he's unable to hold a um, job because of a character flaw, like a poor attitude or a work ethic? Could be both. That's kind of what I think, too. I mean, if you're a 19-year-old, I, I mean, I was never a 19-year-old boy, but I was 19, year old, 19 years old, and I just had these grand ideas about what I wanted to do in life and to be in life, and it never, you know, couldn't even hold a job as a street cleaner. So I think to some of that would be Derek just being disenchanted with the world, but he also, you know, did have some developmental issues, and who knows what his whole struggle with life was. I would wonder why he was demoted. What do you have to do to be demoted from a trash collector to just a street cleaner? Right. And then you get fired from that even because it's unsatisfactory performance. So, I mean, are you putting trash on the street instead of taking it off? Or are you just being lazy and not showing up to work? Oh, good point. Very good point. That's all. That's very possible. All right. So... Derek is unemployed, he's despondent, he has no real possibility or hope for advanced schooling, he can't go back to any kind of school or any kind of career training. What would a, a fella in his position do? Not really a whole lot. I guess he probably would be tempted back to a life of crime. Exactly. Uh, becoming a vagrant. Right. I mean, he's been at home off and on this whole time, but, you know, he has nowhere else to go, nothing to do. And, you know, when you're that bored, usually it's not good. So within just a few weeks, Derek goes um, in this in the winter of 1952. He decides that he's going to go hang out with his good old friend, Christopher Craig, that he met back in Kingswood. And then within a few weeks of of connecting back up with Christopher Craig, 
he's back into Brixton prison. And while he's there, he was diagnosed with a mental age of 11 and 12. 11 or 12 at the age of 19. That's significant. It is. And it's going to be more significant because later on, they're going to say that he did, the police are going to tell us that he did all of these things that may or may not have been possible. So, the crime. Dun, dun, dun. On a cold and unseasonably wet night in November of 1952, a terrible murder is about to take place. Christopher Craig and Derek Bentley are out walking, despite the weather and it being 9 p.m. at night. Again, usually nothing good comes out of that, but you never know. Maybe they're just super bored. Christopher is only 16. Derek is 19. And though Derek is older, it's Christopher that is really the leader of this. Because as where Derek has developmental delays, Chris is actually smarter than his a- than average. He's way smarter than his peers. So he, he and Derek have this unique relationship. And like you might expect, they weren't out for a wholesome walk. The plan was to rob a store in a warehouse. They wanted money, the store inventory, and whatever else they could sell to make a quick profit. Both boys have weapons. Christopher has a revolver with extra rounds, and Derek is carrying a large knife and some brass knuckles. Um, The English call them knuckle dusters, I guess. I've never heard them called that. I wonder why. I don't know. Because I wouldn't think you'd just lightly brush somebody with one. Yeah. Well, I also don't want to find out why. (laughs) I I don't either, (laughs) but I'm sure they have a very good, there's a very good reason that they're called that. Yeah. So if anybody's listening in the UK, feel free to send us... Uh, why you call them knuckle dusters instead of brass knuckles. So the boys, they scope out the place where they're going to rob, and then they gain access to the building by shimming up a drain pipe that's on the side, and they go all the way up to the roof. Apparently, they didn't good, do a very good job of checking out the, the area because there was a, a nine-year-old girl that was watching them from her bedroom at an adjacent p- a building. Like, she just sat and watched them climb up this this drain pipe and start doing whatever they're going to doing. Being a good young citizen, this girl tells her parents and the dad runs down to call the police. Um, And the police show up pretty quickly and they begin yelling up to the roof, trying to talk the boys into surrendering. Christopher and Derek think this is a horrible idea. So they hide behind an elevator shaft housing that's up there. So they have an elevator that goes from the bottom of the store, the warehouse, all the way up to the top of the roof. And then, you know, there's like this little housing. Again, this is important later of where the elevator sits up there. And Christopher begins to yell insults down to the cops. That's never going to go well. No, no. Especially back in the 1950s, right? Everyone had a gun. <laughs> right. Well, I... I don't know, in England? Uh, yeah, I Were don't, they against the law there yet, yet? I don't know if they were yet. I didn't look to see when that happened. I mean, Christopher had one already. I don't know. That's a really good question. So, meanwhile, one of the police detectives uses their distraction where, you know, Chris and Derek are yelling at the police on the ground. This other guy, this other police officer, sneaks up the roof by climbing up that same drain pipe without the boys noticing. Once he's up there, Detective Sergeant Frederick Fairfax, that's the police detective, grabs Derek really quickly, but Derek grabs, or he pulls away and he runs to the other side of the roof. Here's where the important events take place. The other police are still on the ground. They're trying to get up through the roof, or to the roof, through the store and the store elevator. They're having a hard time getting in the door. There's The owner isn't there. I don't know what's taking so long. 
Fairfax is up on the roof alone with the would-be criminals, and he yells to Christopher, hand over the gun lab. And Derek yells, let him have it, Chris. See a problem with this? Uh, well, I see a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So with just that little exchange, hand over the gun, lad, and Derek tells him, let him have it, Chris. Well? Did Derek really understand what he was doing? Excellent question. That's exactly it. So directly after Derek yells, let him have it, Chris, Christopher Craig fires his pistol and he hits Detective Fairfax high up in the shoulder. So now Christopher starts shooting with wild abandon. He's just shooting everywhere, which is dumb. And Fairfax sees Derek is standing rather still, just in kind of shock and disbelief. So Fairfax lunges at Derek again, takes Derek into custody, hoping to keep at least one of these boys from hurting someone else and being, you know, his fellow man getting hurt. Derek takes this opportunity to warn Fairfax that Christopher has extra ammunition. And while having said discussion, because Christopher, or because Derek is a multitasker, he also tries to use his knife on the detective while he's being held down. It didn't work well. Uh, but he was trying to be a little helpful. Yeah, so the point is that there's a whole lot going on. Christopher is still shooting. Um, office, or Detective Fairfax is shot. Derek is picked, you know, he's in custody and he seemingly is trying to help the detective, but he's also still trying to stab said detective. Um, Did Derek know that there were bullets actually in the gun? Did Derek, I mean, had, had that been a scenario that was anticipated given his developmental age? Good question. And that actually is going to come into play later into the whole trial. So hold that thought. Hearing the gunshots, the other police that are down on the ground, they they double their efforts to get up to the rooftop to help their officer or their detective that's up there. They finally come out of the elevator shaft and they walk straight into a scene that seems more like our American Wild Wild West. And the very first officer through the door is police constable Sidney Miles. PC Miles comes out of the elevator, turns the corner, corner and starts toward Detective Fairfax. Christopher shoots PC Miles in the head, killing him instantly. At this point, it's been about 15 minutes, according to statements made by Detective Fairfax, since Derek said, let him have it, Chris. And yes, this is going to be important. So PC Miles is dead. Detective Fairfax is shot. Chris finally runs out of ammunition, and he decides that jumping off a three-story building is better than being put into police custody. So he can go to the hospital and then go into police custody. Maybe. That's, yeah. Derek is still being detained at this point by Detective Fairfax. Somehow, Christopher survives the 30-foot drop, and he's taken to the hospital with a broken wrist and a fractured spine. Right. Good call. Derek goes directly to the police station, where he gives his statement. I have a copy of Derek's police statement on what happened that night. This is supposedly a statement that Derek wrote. He wrote it out himself, and police make sure that the document is signed by Derek, ensuring that Derek agrees that what is written down is true and accurate. 
So if you want to take a look at this statement yourself, you can find it in the case notes on our website, which we'll give out at the end of the episode. So Kathy has this statement, and she's going to read it for you word for word. I have known Craig since I went to school. We were stopped by our parents going out together, but we still continued going out with each other. I mean, we have not gone out together until tonight. I was watching television tonight, and between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m., Craig called for me. My mother answered the door, and I heard her say that I was out. I had been out earlier to the pictures and got home just after 7 p.m. A little later, Norman Parsley and Frank Facey called. I did not answer the door or speak to them. My mother told me that they had called, and I then ran out after them. I walked up the road with them to the paper shop where I saw Craig standing. We all talked together, and then Norman Parsley and Frank Facey left. Chris Craig and I then caught a bus to Croydon. We got off the bus, we got off at West Croydon, and then walked down the road where the toilets are. I think it is Tamworth Road. When we came to the place where you found me, Chris looked in the window. There was a little iron gate at the side. Chris then jumped over, and I followed. Chris then climbed up the drain pipe to the roof, and I followed. Up to then, Chris had not said anything. We both got out onto the flat roof at the top. Then someone in a garden on the opposite side shone a torch up toward us. Chris said, It's a copper. Hide behind here. We hid behind a shelter arrangement on the roof. We were there waiting for about ten minutes. We did, sorry, I did not know he was going to use the gun. A plain clothes man climbed up the drain pipe and onto the roof. The man said, I am a police officer. The place is surrounded. He caught hold of me, and as we walked away, Chris fired. There was nobody else there at the time. The policeman and I then went round a corner by a door. A little later, the door opened, and a policeman in uniform came out. Chris fired again. Then, and this policeman fell down. I could see that he was hurt as a lot of blood came from his forehead just above his nose. The policeman dragged him round the corner behind the brickwork entrance to the door. I remember I shouted something, but I forgot what it was. I could not see Chris when I shouted to him. He was behind a wall. I heard some more policemen behind the door, and the policeman with me said, I don't think he has many more bullets left. Chris shouted, Oh yes, I have, and he fired again. I think I heard him fire three times altogether. The policeman then pushed me down the stairs, and I did not see any more. I knew we were going to break into the place. I did not know what we were going to get, just anything that was going. I did not have a gun, and I did not know Chris had one until he shot. I now know that the policeman in uniform that was shot is dead. I should have mentioned that after the plainclothes policeman got up the train pipe and arrested me, another policeman in uniform followed, and I heard someone call him Mac. He was with us when the other policeman was killed.
end statement. So, did anything stand out to you when you were reading through this? Well, he states that he was not aware of any gun, nor was he aware of what they were going to actually do. Um, his um, pattern is very broken with his speech. Um, very simple statements. Right. Derek doesn't recognize the majority of the alphabet. Therefore, he still can't read. Or, How did he write? Or write. <laughs> right. So, he certainly can't do that to the level of this statement. Even if he could write broken words or sentences, which nobody said that he could, he could not write at this level. Mm, I have never known um, anyone at the four to five year old reading level that that could write at this statement. Right. Um, at that level of us, right? Exactly. And also, um, he has pretty good sentence structure in the individual sentences. Right. They're not complex sentences, but they are mostly correct sentences. For the most part, yes. Exactly. Um, and if this statement is an exact copy of what he wrote, he has got very good spelling. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very good. Okay. So, but wait, there's more. You ready? Okay. All right. So a month later, both Christopher Craig and Derek Bentley are on trial for murder. Both of them. Okay. Because of a British law at the time, Christopher Craig was only 16 when he committed the crime. Therefore, Christopher Craig could not be charged with murder because of this British law, even though he was the one that fatally shot PC Miles. So, also along the same line, Derek is still being tried for murder because he was there at that time. But also, they're saying that he's guilty of murder because Derek said, let him have it, Chris. This statement becomes pivotal because there's two ways to look at it. Okay, mm -hmm. so both defendants swear that this statement was never uttered. But Detective Fairfax takes the stand. He tells the judge and jury that these were the exact words that Derek said and that Derek was urging Chris to shoot the police. Like, let him have it. Okay, that's the way that Detective Fairfax took it. Kind of like last week's case with Michelle Carter's text message messages urging her boyfriend, Conrad Roy, to commit suicide. That was enough to get her convicted of manslaughter. Derek's words were considered enough to make him culpable in the death of P.C. Miles. So after less than an hour and a half of deliberation, Derek is found guilty of murder, even though Derek was already in custody when P.C. Miles was shot. And even though 15 minutes had already passed since Derek reportedly uttered this, this statement of let him have it, Chris. Hmm. Well, he also states that he did not know that Chris had a gun until he shot. 
Right. That's in his statement. Didn't know he had the gun until he was shot. But I guess in the heat of the moment, oh, my friend ha- has a gun, so let him have it. Just give it to him. Or, you know, Derek could have really just been saying, give him the gun. I'm scared. I'm done. I, I mean, it could go either way. It's a very ambiguous statement. But there was nobody that looked at it any other way than than Derek was egging Chris on to shoot to shoot everybody. And because there was no way to record things at that time, to gain knowledge from tone and reflection right. of voice, right. the only... Um, no body the cams. Only, yeah. There were no body cams. They, they simply had only the officer's account of it and his interpretation, which has to take weight when there's no other evidence. Exactly. It's a good way to put that. So just a few weeks later, at 9 a.m. on January 28th, 1953, Derek Bentley, just 19 years old, is hanged to death for the murder of PC Miles. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence. We've already talked about the yelled phrase, which may or may not have happened. We talked about how he could, Derek could have meant something different than the way uh, Detective Fairfax thought it was meant. Um, it's, you know, it's just as likely that he meant for Christopher to give the gun and to surrender. For me and for like modern people, that's enough to create reasonable doubt. Like there, it could have been meant either way. As you said, there's no supporting evidence either way. But that's not how it worked back then. What were the laws in England during that time period was reasonable doubt even enough to not convict someone. I mean, it's almost 70 years ago now. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. And a lot has changed. So the reality of the situation is this. Detective Fairfax knew that Chris Craig would never be found guilty for murder of a police officer and that the best way to get any kind of retribution for his fallen comrade was to get Derek Bentley convicted. Somebody needed to pay. Derek certainly had his own part in this crime. He really did. And I'm not the one that talks about how wrong the police are ever. Most of the time, I think the police do a fantastic job. But again, 1950s police were not held to the same standards of evidence and behavior as they are now. And we're talking about two different countries. Right. And cultural differences. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, for here, there is a huge difference. So everything was happening a lot differently. So I think you'll see there's more evidence that show that maybe the police weighted things or um, put things in order to make sure that Derek was found guilty. So let's look at the next bit of language evidence, which was Derek's written statement. In the 1950s England, there were two basic types of verbal statement, the ways that you could take their statements. So the police and the suspect would have a dialogue, like a question and answer session. We call it an interview now, which leads to an interrogation. So that's one way. The other method is to let the suspect tell their tale like a story. Um, The suspect can either write it out, they can write their story out, or an officer can write it out as the suspect is giving it a verbal verbal story. And they would have to write it out word for word. There could be no questioning from the police. They just had to transcribe the verbal statement verbatim, word for word, 
nothing else. You cannot ask any leading questions like, and then what happened? Or who was that? Or are you sure that's what happened? You could not do any of that. So during the trial, the police said Derek gave his story in the second monologue style and that they, the police, dutifully wrote down all his words just as he said them. Uh, well, given his diagnosis of delays, maybe he processed words to verbalize them in a better ability than he could any other way. I mean, you said earlier that it sounds like very simple statements. So that could be the way that it went, right? The officer let him tell his story and the police just wrote it down word for word. And that's very possible. It also seems like it's very detailed for someone who has the developmental disadvantages that Derek had. So remember, while he was in prison waiting for his trial, there was a doctor that examined him and assessed him and said that he had the mental capabilities of an 11 or 12 year old. So who knows? Keep, just keep that part of mind. However, Derek strongly denied that he just told the story. He said that there was at least part of the interview that was a was the question and answer style. So you can't mix the two. You're not supposed to mix the two. So here's two key points for this part. This statement was allowed in as evidence. This this statement was part of the trial. Okay. While waiting for his trial to start, Derek was examined. Like I was just telling you, he was examined and assessed by Dr. Matheson. Dr. Matheson said Derek, quote, cannot even recognize or write down all of the letters of the alphabet, end quote. So he would not, it would not have been possible for him to actually write. Well, maybe the police officer wrote it down for him. And he could have dictated it. One thing you have to be very careful of when you are dictating is that you do not paraphrase and that you truly are writing it verbatim and that you're an impartial party. Super difficult, right? Very difficult. So even if Derek didn't write his own statement, that it was dictated for him, the police still said that he signed it and attested that it was true and accurate after reading it. Derek signed this statement and said, yes, it's true and accurate after he he read it. Well, he couldn't have possibly read it if he can't recognize all of the letters of the alphabet. He probably could sign his name. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because it's, it's often that children do learn how to copy their name right. without knowing what all of the letters are it's a memorization yeah it's more like a symbol rather than word for word or letter by letter exactly but he could not have read it if he did not under if he did not recognize all of the letters in the alphabet so there's no way he could have read this statement that we read to you guys and said yep this is true and off we go so here is the real problem another problem i guess derek didn't write this and he didn't he didn't give this statement either. This was not, these are not his words. 
And here's why. Okay. So Derek's family obviously is very, very upset that, you know, he was hung within a matter of three weeks of being found guilty and he was pretty much railroaded, they thought. So in the hopes, they continued to appeal his case and trying to get him cleared. And during one of these appeals, they had a forensic linguist named Malcolm Coulthgaard uh, conduct an analysis of Derek's statements. And to, he determined that the repeated use of the word then is key to establishing who really authored this statement. The word then. Okay, so here, read these sentences from Derek's statement. So like sentence eight, blah. Sentence eight, I then ran out after them. Sentence 11, I then caught a bus to Croydon. Sentence 15, Chris then jumped over and I followed. Sentence 16, Chris then jumped up the drain pipe. Sentence 28, I then went around a corner by a door. Sentence 30, Chris fired again. Then, and this policeman fell down. Sentence 38, the policeman then pushed me down the stairs. Mm -hmm. So does this sound normal to you? No, most people would not use it that often. Okay, so there's definitely using the word then often. This is it's called a temporal word. It's a, it's a time-orienting word. It's a chronology, right? So if the detectives told... Chris, tell us the story in the order, like in chronological order. It's possible he could use the word then that many times. But the key to this is look at where the word then shows up. It comes after the subject. Chris is the subject and then then comes after. Chris fired again. I is the subject. I then went. I then caught. I then ran. The policeman then. So this is a very, very unusual in normal conversation. Usually in a time setting word, then comes before the subject. Then I caught the bus. Then Chris jumped over. Then Chris fired again. That's normal. So if I were to say, so tell me what what you did today. Well, I woke up, then I had breakfast, then I put my shoes on, then I went to the grocery store. When I got home, I then brushed the dogs, and then I did this. So in that little statement, I then showed up once, and then the other thens were all before the subject. That's normal. And is that normal in British English as well as American English? It is. Because the, the forensic linguist, being the scientist, uh, he compared Derek's statement with a database of 1.5 million spoken words of British English and found that the normalized then I, which is then subject, happens 10 times more often than I then. So yes. So think about that for a minute. And can you think of any group of people who might talk or write in this more unusual construction of then I? Uh, well, somebody who was, um, let's see how to explain this. Or the uh, construction of I, then, I, then, not then, I, but I, then. I was trying to convince that, um, it was somebody else's words. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe. Which, okay. So, Mr. Kulthgaard thought he might recognize the pattern. I mean, his job, his his whole career is reading 
words and listening to spoken. It's his job to find these kind of patterns and where they belong. Police officers are trained to make sure the reports contain the correct order of events with as much detail as possible. So Kuthgard looks at the sample of witness statements and samples of police statements, and he found that the then-I pattern did not occur one time, not one, in the witness statements, but occurred nine times in the police statements. So when the police write their own reports, it's I then, I then, suspect then. In the, wit- in the witness statements, it didn't even show up one time. It was all subject um, after. So then I. So then I went to the store instead of I then went to the store. So what, what does that tell us? That um, it is very unlikely that Derek wrote this letter that, or perhaps even dictated it. Correct. At the very, at the very least, he might have like these might have been the details that he was he gave the detectives or whoever took his statement, but he did not write it. This was paraphrased. Mm-hmm. This was written and transcribed in somebody else's words and thoughts. And that makes sense. Um, when you add it all up, right, it makes given sense. Given all of the information about Derek, his abilities. Right. So thankfully. There are now higher standards for taking verbal statements and for general evidence gathering. Um, just the addition of a voice recorder in this in this um, setting for Derek would have would have been all the break that Derek would have needed. But they didn't have those. Well, they had them, but obviously the police did not use them in this situation. So again, at the very least, this presents reasonable doubt. It does, and it's highly plausible that Derek's statement was not 100% accurate, and therefore it should not have been admitted as evidence. Could anyone prove other than the one expert? Did they have any other additional evidence? Well, they had it. They just weren't listening. Derek said he never said it. Derek said that that wasn't um, that the question, he didn't just narrate that he had question and answers. They had other doctors that said that he was only 11 or 12 years old of a mental age. There were doctors that said he was only, he couldn't even recognize all of his letters in the alphabet. So you add all that together, there's no way to, that it, it equals the level of complexity that this statement is. And the fact that Derek, while being culpable didn't actually commit the murder. Right, he wasn't the one to pull the trigger, right? Okay. So, if this statement was never admitted into evidence, that means that the jury would never have been able to debate this last and final piece of language evidence. In sentence 23, Bentley says, I did not know he was going to use the gun. Or, I mean, he supposedly said that, but I did not know he was going to use the gun. So here's where things get a little bit technical. The the determiner, the, which we all know a, an, and the are articles. They're also called determiners. It gives different information than the determiners a or an. So think of a apple or the apple, an apple or the apple. That apple is very specific. You're talking about a specific apple. An apple, you could pick any apple in the barrel. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Okay, so the gun versus 
a gun. Do you hear it? The gun is very specific. Okay. So if someone talks about going to see the concert, they're referring to one specific concert. If someone's talking about going to see a concert, they're generalizing. They could be going to any concert. But how does this affect the case? The prosecution said that since Derek said he didn't know Chris was going to use the gun, that that means Derek was aware that Chris had the gun and that there was a possibility of gun violence. It showed premeditation and that Derek was aware that somebody could be hurt. Okay. But if you're looking at the evidence regarding the statement itself, did Derek actually speak those words? Right, so we have no idea if he actually said those words. If we want to believe everything that's in the statement, then you have to believe the fact that he said, I didn't know that Chris had a gun, because that's in the statement too. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't have yeah. a gun. But regardless, for several jurors, this little word, T-H-E, the, was the determining factor when deciding if Derek was guilty or innocent. The. That's a lot of weight on one three-letter word. Exactly. That's exactly right. So... The gun, even though everything else said that Derek was not guilty or couldn't have been capable, at the very least, you know, he was an accessory, um, but somebody had to pay and it ended up being Derek. So case conclusion, Derek's family continued to fight for justice. Um, His mom passed away without ever seeing uh, the, the wrongs righted, but... I think it was his niece, great niece. But after 46 years and numerous appeals, Derek was legally and formally cleared. So as of July 30th, 1998, Derek was pardoned and was no longer considered a criminal. Finally. That's great, except he was, he was hanged. Yeah, he's, he'd been dead for 46 years by that point. So. He never had a life to live. He was only 19. So, as you can see, linguistics can get down to the nitty-gritty, and it can turn very technical. My purpose for this whole podcast is to kind of clear up some of the confusion of how language within the context of legal and justice systems work. It gets really weird sometimes. So, if you haven't already hit that follow button... Do it now because next week we're tackling the John Bonet Ramsey case, particularly the infamous, the infamous handwritten ransom note and some verbal statements from John and Patsy Ramsey that show that they know more than they're actually telling us. You really don't want to miss it. So also, please take a few minutes to rate and review Words to Kill By on whatever app you're using to listen to us. It will really help us out and it will help us give you more content. And don't forget to check out the case notes, resources, pictures, and other information about the Derek Bentley case on our website, which is www.wordstokillby.com. And join the discussion on our social media at Words to Kill By on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, words matter, so choose yours carefully.